You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Friday edition of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. And today, we're going to be talking with Mitch Shirk from Pennsylvania about food plots, habitat management, and with it being this late in the summer, is it too late? to start a habitat project or a food plot project this far into the season. So it is a really good episode. The guy's very knowledgeable. He actually went to school and is is professional. He's a professional, I think, ag- agronomist is how you would pronounce it. So he knows what he's talking about. This isn't just some guy uh, who plants food plots. He actually knows the science behind why he's doing certain things. And uh, it actually helps him out in the in the long run so he's going to kind of walk us through maybe some late summer food plot tactics and uh, we bs for a while as well so it's a really good episode and by the way if you haven't listened to the pennsylvania woodsman podcast mitch is the host and he is really good at what he does he interviews a lot of people from all over michigan or excuse me all over pennsylvania and uh, throughout the rest of the country about, you know, things that he likes to do uh, outdoors, you know, hunting, fishing, um, food plots, obviously, are his his big thing and everything else that goes on in the state of Pennsylvania. So go make sure you uh, follow along on that. Follow along with him on social media. Next, forgot what I was going to say. Dang it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a really good podcast, man. Before we get into today's episode, though, we got to run through some commercials. And uh, so I just, and I'm going to do an unfiltered episode about it next week, but I have a new farm that I got access to. Long story short, scouted it, hung trail cameras, and I'm starting to get some trail camera pictures via cell cam back to my phone. And this property definitely has potential. Now, if it wasn't for cell cams, right now I just have trail cameras soaking out there. There was no overwhelming, like, oh my God, look at this awesome bedding area. Look at this buck. Look Look at this old sign. It just really wasn't there. Now I know there's a there's some potential there. All right, so I got a couple shooters on trail camera, and I'm looking forward to getting out there and hunting that. You know, this uh, October November time frame, and maybe even uh, an opportunity for me to finally start to hunt late season here in Iowa. So, with that said, we have a awesome awesome podcast uh, hunt stand, right? So what I was getting at was hunt stand. Hunt stand is 
I basically documented everything at this point um, on my main farm. I went into my new for- farm, started documenting it, documenting it as well. Crit crossings, um, bed, potential bedding areas, beds, uh, water sources. What else? Uh, where I put my trail cameras, potential tree stand locations. And so what I'm doing is I'll be able to take some of those um, pictures I get from my trail cameras. I will go ahead and upload those into uh, hunt stand as well for management purposes. And I mean, really it's just this awesome tool for documenting your hunting properties, journaling about your hunting properties. And, and then you can use that information to put yourself in the best position come hunting season. So if you want to find out more about hunt stand, visit huntstand.com. There's a 20% discount code SN20. It's the most popular for a reason. So go check it out. Next, we have Wasp Archery. Love their heads. And uh, man, I, I was shooting my bow out of my tethered saddle, which uh, I'll talk about here shortly. But um, uh, it, it takes a little, you know, getting used to, but I can definitely see myself finding success this year and loving to learn like loving the the saddle opportunity. Um, now, like I like I mentioned, I'm, I'm not going to be 100% a saddle hunter. I'm going to use it as a tool in my arsenal for you know being really mobile. Maybe I need to get in someplace real tight and quiet. The best thing to do is is have a saddle there. So, if you're interested in uh, a tethered saddle, you got to go check out tethered. Uh, Tethered's website. They have saddles, they have climbing sticks, and all the accessories you need to be a saddle hunter. And so I skipped over Wasp. Basically, what I'm getting at here is I cannot wait to deploy a Wasp jackhammer on a target buck this year. Man, I they absolutely destroy everything they touch. They have awesome the, the awesome design. And you match that awesome design with the best possible material and you got something really deadly that kills deer. And so um, I strongly recommend if you're looking for a broadhead, go check out wasparchery.com. I have a discount code for 20% off, NFC20. And then lastly, Vortex Optics. Good luck to some of the guys that I know there. They're getting ready to go on a Kodiak Island bear hunt. I believe this, uh, this next week. So that should be crazy, a, a crazy experience for them. Good luck to those guys. And let me say, uh, if you're, you know, you've heard me talk about this before, but if you're looking for a great company that has great optics, whether you're looking for a binocular or a spotting scope or a range finder or a rifle scope or a red dot, so on, check out Vortex because they have the best customer service, the best people who are relatable and they can help you with whatever problem you have. So go check out vortexoptics.com. And they also have a really awesome apparel line for you guys to go check out too. With that said, now I can stop talking and let's get into today's episode with Mitch Shirk. Three, two, one. All right. Another member of the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network all the way from Pennsylvania. And he is the host of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast, Mr. Mitchell Shirk. How we doing, man? Hey, if I was any better, I'd have to sit on my hands to keep from clapping, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. It's a good day. Uh, how's your summer going so far? I mean, better now. I mean, I feel 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I get to be a guest on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'm just busting your balls. I know. I'm good, <laughs> well, I tell you this. Um, a lot of people uh, reach out and, and, you know, sometimes I can, you know, I can, I can pull it and some kind, sometimes I can't and things like that. Um, but I've done 700 episodes, over 700 episodes. So really anybody who wants to be on it can be on it there's that much content out, out there so i think there is yeah i think really. when it comes to the number of podcasts that i've uh put out there's only been two people who have done such a poor job that i decided not to launch the episode so two out of over 700 i feel is pretty good well, in all reality, you think about hunting and the, the culture around that, I would say 95 plus percent of us are bullshitters anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Telling the same. Let me let me ask you a question. 
Um, do you know, and don't, you don't have to say their name, but do you know like a really good buddy of yours, or maybe that person's you who is a a bullshitter. And what I mean by that is every time they tell the story, the fish gets a little bigger or the buck gets a little bigger. I feel like everybody knows somebody (laughs) like that. I try my darndest not to be that person. Um, I, I personally don't think I am, but of course, you know, there's a speck in my eye and I can't see it, but right, right. you know, every, uh, I think everybody's got somebody like that. Oh yeah. man. We got this buddy who, um, and, and I don't hang out with a ton. Like most of the people that I hang out with are, are like, man, I, man, I, I, I wish I could sit here and say I have a ton of friends. I don't, I hang out with one guy every once in a while. Uh, and yeah. he's just like a long time elementary middle school high school college buddy that i've just hung like that he's close and so i hang out with him but i I really don't hang out with people anymore but we have this one buddy and he he hunts and dude every time he tells a story you have to think a, a little bit and go is he bullshitting or is he telling the truth like dude i saw a booner tonight i'm like Come on, buddy. Maybe maybe like a one thirty. <laughs> so well, so I'm like, yeah. if he he'd be the luckiest guy in the world if he was seeing all these deer that he was seeing. Oh yeah, I can relate to that. I, well, the thing I think about is a lot of time I talk with with people, friends, family, you know, just hunting buddies or just general guys you want to talk about hunting with, and you know, people say, oh, I saw a huge buck. I saw a huge buck. And I think everybody's perspective of what a huge buck is, right. is so different. There's so yeah. many people like, man, I saw a huge buck. And then you see a picture of it. It's like, what? I, I wouldn't call that. I, it's a nice buck. It's it's like a <laughs> 120 inch two year old. That, that That's a nice buck, but yeah. that's not a, in my opinion, that's not a big buck. Yeah. Like yeah. there's certain, there's certain people that I talk to when they say, I saw a good buck. You you know right you know. away. Okay, he saw a good buck. Exactly. I believe him. He knows what a good buck is. So. Exactly, exactly. And the more time you spend in the tree stand, uh, a guy spends in the tree stand, he, uh, or maybe even deer that he puts down on the ground, he can valid. You can validate that through what he what he knows and what he's done. And then there's other guys. It's just like, well, if you're seeing all these deer, why aren't you shooting any of these deer? Right. So um, there's, uh, I'm one of them. Like, you know, you, you've you've talked with me. You've heard my some of my episodes and stuff like that. Like, I I'm try to be as science minded as possible with stuff because that's where research goes. I think it helps me make my decisions. But, and you know this too because you've done 700 some episodes. You talk with some people and they come up with some off the wall ideas and say some crazy things. But I'm at the point where. If you got that trophy room to back that up, oh yeah, I I'm all ears, man. Yeah. I don't care how crazy it is. I'll take something away. Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. You excited for this upcoming season? Uh, how could you not be? You know, yeah. 2020, I had the season of my life, so I, I I felt like I went into 21 with like a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, and I was like, not. I don't know. It just, it took me so long to get back into the groove of 21. I didn't fill a buck tag in 21 in Pennsylvania. So like now it's like amplified. I'm chomping at the bid. We you know, got some cameras out. I'm, I'm looking to get some more out in a couple scouting ventures here in July and August and everything else. So I'm very fired up, especially because there's a couple of deer that I know made it through. We already have their picture and they were, you know, they they frequented the places we hunt in daylight hours last year and you know the, the one in particular i i passed up um it was the hard, biggest buck i've ever passed in my life but we all agreed that if he made it one more year he'd be a giant and right now he's turning out to be a great deer so i'm, I'm excited for that that's awesome that's awesome i like asking this next question why do you think you weren't successful last year um well I missed a buck um, from my own stupidity. Um, So I've, since I'm 12 years old, I shot a single pin sight. And for the first time in my life, I did this. I shot a couple arrows before I left, and I was shooting at 30 yards. And for whatever reason, when I finished, I forgot. I always keep my pin on 20 yards. Because my mindset is, if it comes in, I want to just be able to draw back and shoot it. And if it's past 
30 yards, if it's 30 yards or further, if I don't have the time to go through my shot sequence and range and do all that stuff, I don't have a, enough time to execute a good shot. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm sitting on stand and one of the deer that it wasn't a huge antler deer, but it was a deer we thought was a four-year-old plus deer. And I was absolutely thrilled to put my tag around. He came in 15 yards broadside as quick as could be. He was cruising through the rut. I literally just up with my bow, drew back, let the arrow fly. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? That's not, and it, it grazed the top of his back. I'm like, that's not going to kill that deer. What, what just happened? Like I, I, I make mistakes like yeah. everybody else, but I, I'm not a, I don't think I'm a, a spring chicken either. I looked at my pin. I'm like, Oh, you dumbass!" Like it was, <laughs> I, I knew right away what I did that. So like the reason I was unsuccessful, um, I look back on my season, I don't think there was anything I would have done differently. The, the the thing I'm learning right now in my phase of life, I always had the mindset that, and I still have this mindset, the season is a marathon. And, and I say this, I, I do hunt a little bit more private land than public land, but the season is a marathon and I am going to go to my best stand locations at the best time. I'm not going to burn that spot out at the wrong time because that's going to hurt me in the long run. Right. So um, I try to be as gradual as possible, and I've got three months to get it done. If yeah. I don't get it done, the time runs out, that's okay. But what I notice is uh, with my freedoms of work, family life, and stuff like that, just because it's the right time based on all the factors we look at, weather, wind, blah, 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 I don't always get to go hunting on those times. So I'm in right. a new phase of trying to make it happen when it at least, you know, the least likely times just because that's when I can go, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I believe that a guy can kill a deer any day he walks into the woods. If he, the more information that he has about a specific area, the more likely he is to have an encounter, thus leading to a potential kill. Right. Agreed. We, we all know that, but I'm kind of lucky because of the kid scenario right it, it's forced me to stay out of the woods in october leaving my my best spots truly my best spots uh alone for until you know that pre-rut rut time frame where i mean yeah there's pressure everywhere but i feel like the way i access my tree stand locations and, and my hunting er, uh, little areas it just allows for I don't know. There's something special about going in in late October, you know, I, not even late October, even early November in that pre-rut time frame where you're just like, dude, they they could step out tonight. You know what I mean? First time in, best time in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cameras play a huge role into that for us. I mean, whether it's yes. past history Yes. Or if it's just recent information with a cell camera. I mean, I've used both to kill deer, and I I'm trying to get better at paying attention to time frames that certain deer. Because th there's no doubt in my mind, the longer if you have the privilege to do it and see a deer go three, four, five years old, and you get history with them, there's definitely things that are repeatable that you can use the next season. I mean, I've seen that time and time again on multiple mature deer. And, you know, I, I've, I'm a firm believer the first or second time you go in is, is usually your best time. Yep. But, I, I mean, I hate going in blind. I got to know for some reason to go in after it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. But we're not here to talk necessarily about uh, big buck strategy, per se. Maybe a little bit of strategy. But we're talking food plots, and we're going to talk maybe a little overlap into the habitat management uh, side of things. But uh, I want to I want to ask you a, a question. Like, it's the first week of July right now, uh, and there's somebody who's listening to this. Maybe after they get done listening to this episode, they're going to say, "Man, I got an area that I could potentially put a food plot in, but I, I haven't." prepared for it at all is it too late to do something like to plan a food plot to to start from scratch this this far into the summer oh not at all i do i've done so many different last minute things like that um and anybody can do it and the thing is you really don't need a lot of equipment it depends on what 
what the site location looks like. But, you know, I said this on a couple other episodes, and I'll say it again. If you have um, a herbicide sprayer, um, and even if you just have a lawnmower, maybe you have an ETV or something like that, and you can you can do something to drag the seed or like like drag over top of it or a cold pack or something that's that's the only equipment you really need and you can do it with even less than that. i've done it with foot tools and hand tools and stuff like that's just you know it's more sweat equity but not at all i mean i've taken some places that were you know let's just take say it's old crp or it's just overgrown mess you know here in july right now is a great time to just go out and spray it all dead. You don't need to till it. You don't, please don't mow it. Mowing it makes a mulchy mess. I would rather, even if the weeds are just five, six feet high, I would rather just go through and spray it dead with using like Roundup and 2,4-D. Um, get, get it that like all that matter starts to dry and desiccate and start to expose the soil. Give it another month into August and you can probably start to see some new stuff coming up. Maybe some of the stuff didn't get a complete kill. Um, but around the beginning of August, depending on where you're at in the country, but I mean, you're in, you're in Iowa, I'm in Pennsylvania. I mean, anything in that general latitude sometime between the first and the Basically, the whole month of August, you can be planting fall food pots, and that's around the time a month from now, you could spray it with Roundup again, and you could do a no-till food plot with a small seed. Um, those seeds that I usually go for are like brassicas, cereal grains. You can do fall clovers. You can do perennial clovers. You know, small seeds that you'd be surprised when you kill that giant thatch that's five, six feet tall. You kill it and you let the sun hit it and break down that stuff. You can barely brush your hands across that soil surface with that mulch and you can find soil and yeah. seed will reach that. It just needs rain. Yeah. All right. You mentioned something that I heard. I, I, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me true or false. Uh, brassicas, right? You, you mentioned planting a brassica. So I hear brassica. Mm-hmm. I hear late. Well, they eat the leaves in the summertime, right? Hey, that, I, I think I know where you're going with this question. Sometimes they do, yes, but keep, continue. Yeah, so I heard that unlike clover, you plant clover, deer will come and they'll eat it right away. I, I heard that it takes a while for deer to, I, I don't know what to say, get acclimated or, f- number one, find it, and number two, start to eat it as a food source. True or false? Um. General sense, I'm going to say false. Okay. And the the reason that I say that is, um, I I did a I did a podcast with Kip Adams from National Deer Association this winter, and I was talking with him, and I, I was we were talking, of course, science stuff related with deer, and I said about you know deer are browsers by nature, and he said, well, actually they're they're concentrated selective feeders or something like that, you yeah. know, even more technical than I am, but you know. You know as well as I do, deer are going to pick the absolute best that's available to them at that time. Right. I've been to places that I planted brassicas in the springtime, in the late summer, and I have seen them eaten to the dirt in the in the springtime or the, the early fall before it even got the hunting season. And I think the reason for that is the surrounding habitat, the surrounding vegetation they did not have anything better that was the best available food source but then i've also seen properties where you plant some kind of brassica mixture and brassicas you might have radishes purple top turnips vivet turnips kale uh, canola whatever and you'll see them sit there and you get these giant beautiful plants and it's just like when the heck are they going to eat them? Are they going to eat them? Yeah. And it might take till later in the season. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. But the main reason is just food availability. Um, variety is actually a big thing. There's certain varieties of brassicas that are more attractive than others. But, I mean, I, I just think it's it's purely food availability. And there's another thing out there people talk about. And I don't know who came up with this. And, and I'll stick my neck out and say I believed it at one time because it made sense. But... You, you heard uh, you've, you've heard that when you get the first frost of the year, yep. that's when the brassicas turn sweet. You've heard that, right? Yep, yep. It, and that's because all the starches turn to sugar. Yep. And when I started to learn some of this stuff, and I'm like, well, 
first of all, who came up with that? And what is a starch, a, a complex carbohydrate that turns, is that actually what happens? And the, the answer really is no. And uh, Dr. Uh, oh my God, Dr. Craig Harper, he did research on that. He's like, all the plant testing we've ever done never never showed that starches turn to sugar. It's just a pure food availability thing. He goes, somebody just said that just because it was a buzzword and it sold seed. I'm like, yeah. well, that could be. I don't. I don't know. Just like everything else in the hunting industry, right? It's like, hey, you want it, You want the best food. You want the best food plot for your. Uh, you know, for, you know, to get big deer, blah, 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 do this and do this. And then when it frosts, they're going to be right all over you, you know, like some crap. Oh, absolutely. Well, there, there's, there is so much, there's good and bad information. I mean, we're in that we're in the era of information overload. And one of the things I try to do on my, uh, my show is just try to put context to everything you hear, because there's recommendations for food plots and properties made in the Midwest that personally, I don't think fit where I'm at in the Northeast, or if they do, you need to take them out of context because, right. if we, you know, you're trying to learn stuff. And if you try to put a square peg in a round hole, uh, you're going to, you're not going to have good experiences. I mean, I, I see this all the time with food plots, you know, oh, so-and-so said I should plant this. Well, why? How does it relate to your hunt? How does it relate to your property? It, it, it yeah. Learning that context is the hardest thing. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. All right, so so you're saying it's definitely doable, right? Right now, if a guy goes, all right, screw it. I'm making the commitment to go do a, uh, a food plot. Uh, I got to spray. I got to let the sun hit it. Uh, I can just drop some seed, get some rain, and hopefully that, you know, that should work, right? In, in the simplest of terms. It absolutely should. And, of course, there's little things you need to watch out. You know, yeah. what's the forecast? Can you trust the freaking forecast? Yeah. But yeah. Uh, stuff like that. But absolutely, you get seed to soil and it gets water and sunlight, it should grow. Now, I, I say this all the time. If you are if you want to ask me, well, should I put fertilizer on it? How much fertilizer should I put on it? Well, I don't know. Did you take a soil test? Yeah. Um, soil tests are like six bucks. Like, good grief, it's the most valuable thing for all the money you're going to spend on a food plot. So if you take, I recommend anybody, I don't care what it is. You can spray your food plot, spray it dead. If you're this guy that's going to go clean something up and then before or after in the near future, pull soil test. And that's literally just a handful of dirt. Cause they literally take a handful of dirt, take a teaspoon out of it. And then they take your macronutrients and your pH and stuff. And that will be, that will tell you what to put on it in yeah. a general sense. And that is huge. Yeah. Okay. All right. So as you started, you know, everybody always has these conversations like, man, I wish I knew 20 years ago what I knew now, or I wish I did this, or, you know, I wish I knew. What did you wish you knew when it comes to planning food plots, specifically maybe summer food plots, keep it in this realm, this time frame of, of July right now. What do you wish that you knew 20 years ago that you know now that would have saved you a lot of trouble? That's a good question. So two things stand out. The, the first one that came to my mind when you said that was no-till. And, and I mean not using a disc, not a rototiller, a chisel, and anything like that. Um, the places I hunt, Dan, are bony, rocky, mountain ground. The, the plots that we have, they are there because there's a bulldozer on the property and we can clear it out and create openings to plant food plots. The ground is rocky. There's not a lot of topsoil. And for years when we established something, we tilled it till it was pulverized dirt. Yep. Well, the other thing too, with that type of ground, we have kind of aggressive slopes. We get these heavy rains that we've been getting the past how many years you lose topsoil, you get inconsistent plant. A lot of bad things happen. You lose your quality soil um, or, or your, your capability of growing stuff. And like when I kind of went through my career of school and getting into agronomy and everything else um, and learned about soil health conservation practices, I wish I would have known about that when I first started planting food plots when, yeah. I, when it was years ago. And the, the things I learned about recycling and retaining soil, recycling nutrients and stuff like that, I mean, I can't believe how much wasted time and effort and 
and things I'm trying to recover from those mistakes years ago. So that was a big one. And then the second thing I think that I stand out is species positioning for the goals that you have in mind. I I mean, everybody talks about food plots and why you plant this, why you plant that, you got to have this, or this is the best food plot. And most of my, most of my time when that goes through my ears, I just think a lot of it's just hogwash anyway, because you got to stand back and say, what are you trying to accomplish and how are you going to use a food plot to do it? My goal regardless is to kill a mature buck. I could care about few other things. I could care less about how many inches of antler I put on their head, or if, if the, they, they increase this percentage of calcium and phosphorus uptake and the that's all bonus if you do it right, but that is not why I plant food plots. I plant food plots because they steer deer movement and relate to how everything else is designed so I can kill a mature buck. Right. Okay. And go ahead. Well, here's the question I have on that. Um, I I hear a lot of habitat talk and I'm kind of, uh, food plot. I, I look at, I look at terms like food plots, and I look habitat management and I, I feel like if this was a pyramid, it all falls under deer management. Okay. Cause obviously you, you want deer to come to your property with food plots. You want them to stay there with habitat management. How much, you know, and, and you start to get into a lot of really detailed conversations about, you know, here's the perfect habitat for a whitetail, you know, these things live everywhere. So obviously there's not necessarily, and I look at it, there's not necessarily a quote unquote perfect habitat, but you know, I hear guys saying things like, oh, you got to get rid of certain types of cedar trees, or you got to, you got to get rid of this, or you got to get rid of this and you have to hinge cut this and do this. But at the same time, I hunt a property, it's about 100 acres, loaded with deer that from my chin down is all multiflower rose, right? And mm-hmm. it, it, some would, that's an invasive species, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so it's head down, multiflower rose, big giant deer live on that property. And so does it, so my question to you then is, does all of that even matter? It, Like I said, it depends what your goals are and what right. you're looking, what, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, I can think of a ton of properties that I've been to that are exactly what you just described. It, it is like the biggest biological desert you could imagine. It's got honeysuckle and moldiflora rose. I mean, when you're, and I say biological desert, what I mean by that is if you take your arms out, I'm six foot tall, you stick your arms out and everything below there is of zero value as far as deer food, um, then that's a biological desert. There's not quality food and browse to, you know, I guess, grow and do all this stuff. Does that mean deer aren't going to spend time there? Absolutely not. Because um, some of the properties that I go to that I see, a lot of deer utilizing it. Let's look at the surrounding area. The surrounding area might be completely barren. Maybe the crops, and, and I'm, I'm speaking relative to fall and winter, right, the crops right. might be taken off. There, so there's no cover as far as cropland. The the woods, the surrounding area, might be completely closed canopy, mature forest. So there's nothing in there. Plus there's no cover. Right. So, you know, the, the area you're describing where it, it's thick, it's just no quality food. And then the last thing, and one of the biggest things, in my opinion, is that might have the area with the lowest hunting pressure. So it, even though it's, it's relatively speaking, crappy cover in food and browse, it's still cover and it might have the lowest hunting pressure. So that might be the biggest area for security on that property. Now, can you enhance that? Well, absolutely, you can enhance it. You can make it better, but does that mean that they aren't going to use it and relate to it? Not at all. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest things I think, out of context. Like you got to have this bedding area and that bedding area. Really, it's just learning the landscape. Where's the lowest hole in your? Pro- where's the lowest hole in the bucket on your property, and trying to fill that fill yeah. that in. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's crazy, man. I, I just I kind of laugh at. I don't know, guys like you, just a little bit. No offense, right? Sure. Who, who who get? We're funny dudes. I know. You get everybody gets geeked out about all this habitat management and things like that. And meanwhile, I am hunting the before pictures 
of all like even in, even in the the main farm that I hunt where I shot my my buck this year, which mm-hmm. for the most part has good deer hunting or or holds deer up until shotgun season, then they disappear, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something there that the deer and I think a lot of it has to do with neighbors who are practicing habitat management, right? So okay. then it becomes maybe like that biological desert that you were talking about, right? Yeah, there's probably some acorns and things like that, but the deer usually don't come back until the springtime. But throughout the the hunting season and throughout the the summer, it's loaded, right? Because there's that there's food available for them. You know, it's dis, you know, it's distributed more throughout the landscape. So Kind of going back, taking a step back, I, I went on a little detour there. Back to the food plot game here. Um, all right, so it, it gets in, we get the rain, it starts to come up, and it just, I don't know, it just looks like shit. My, my food plot, it, to my eyes, looks shitty. Does mm-hmm. that mean it's a bad food plot? Uh, that's That's an interesting question possibly i mean again if you put a food plot in did i'll go back if it looks like shit did you take a soil test um is it a nutrient what 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 is the issue at hand is it a nutrient related issue which is something you got to figure out if it's a nutrient related issue maybe you've got um a uniform stand of plants coming up but they're stunted they're pale they've got an off color well that's usually one of two things they're either don't have enough nutrients or they don't have enough water um, if they don't have water, they can't take nutrients in. So th- that's usually a very relatable thing. If, uh, l- what, let's say you say it, it's, uh, it's a crappy looking food plot. Um, maybe it's crappy because it's spotty. You know, maybe you threw seed out with your hand or you used a broadcast seeder and, um, let's say the, uh, let's see the soil, the, the, the seed bed was uneven. There was places where there was more residue from the material you killed first in one section than another, and you didn't get uh, a real good germination in certain spots, and it's spotty. Uh, what I do, we do this every year. You know, I'm usually planting fall blends sometime during the month of August, and I have a whole list of species that we put, and I put them in every location for the same reasons to try to have food from the beginning of the season to the end of the hunting season and try to continue that deer movement. But about two to three weeks after they plant, let's say I plant on uh, the second week of August, like August 10th, I'm usually coming back around Labor Day and I'm top dressing with a, with like a cereal grain in the thin spots. Um, So what I'll do is I'll take cereal rye or wheat and I'll walk through the field and there's certain species I know are going to get browsed heavier and I'll automatically throw that over top. But maybe you get to a section that, well, this looks like crap. It didn't grow real well here. I'm just going to start filling in that void with a little bit more seed to try to fill lateral soil space and get as much green there as possible. Okay. All right. So, so if it does, right, just because, so here's what I got out of that answer is, just because it looks shitty doesn't mean it is shitty. Um, and if it is shitty, there are still things that you can do to recover it or make it better so that there's still hope for that food plot by the time the hunting season rolls around. Well, yeah, and if you want to have successful food plots, it's not one of those things where you just do it one time and you walk away and you're going to have a match. Food plots are maintenance. Um, I mean, I... I see this in the agricultural world. I was just at a farm this morning. A guy called me to look at his beans, and he said they were planted five weeks ago, and they look like crap. Well, I go out, and I'm like, well, how, long, how often were you watching these? Well, I drive by them in the pickup about once a week, but you didn't go ahead and look at them, and what is wrong with these beans? I'm looking at them five weeks later, and I don't want that to happen to anybody's food plot monitor and see what's going on there's always something you can do whether it's a fertilizer issue um, or whether it's just a, a plant or a soil issue there's always something you can do unless you wait till it's too late and too late would be the hard hunting season if you're sitting in, over your food plot october 15th and there's nothing there well you missed the ball and you got to change something next year gotcha okay all right um what are some food plot killers Right. Some things that, you know, 
outside of the soil sample that we already talked about, uh, you know, a guy doesn't know what he's doing. And if he, he doesn't like, <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you my first food plot. I, I took a harrow or it was like, mm-hmm. it wasn't a disc and it necessarily wasn't a harrow, but it had like four really big wheels on it. And on those wheels were spikes. And basically what it did was just tear up the, the grass and soil. First I sprayed it. I came back two weeks later. I drug, I just basically drove in a circle or a figure eight to get it. And I overseeded brassicas over top of it, right? Over, overdid it. And I think that's why that food plot ended up not being successful. With, okay. with that said, um, I didn't do any, I didn't do a soil sample. I didn't do any yeah. research. Uh, I didn't do, I didn't do anything. Okay. Sure. Um, what are some things that usually kill a food plot? If you, if you don't take a step back and say, I actually better take five, 10 minutes and, and read about read up on something. Yeah. So right away is the first thing that comes to my mind. Let, let's just use your brassic plot, for example, because that's a common one that'll go in in the fall. Young annual plants like brassicas, um, they are easily outcompeted if there is existing plants there, whether that is some kind of annual weed or a perennial grass that grows year after year. Those plants are established or have a deeper root. They will outcompete with your new young plants if you do not get them ready first or, or take care of them. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I use herbicide. I'm not anti-herbicide. That, that is a killer. And you said besides the soil test. So that means I'm assuming that we've got a pH that's taken care of and we've got, um, we've got nutrients applied. Um, the, the next biggest thing that really comes to my mind off the top of my head is just, uh, just rain failures. Um, the, the last thing I'll say, you know, I, I brought up no-till. Um, I, I really like no-till food plots, but they are an adjustment. You got to change your mindset a little bit. You got to be open and adapt to doing things a little bit different. Cause normally everybody's used to just pulverizing the crap out of the dirt. Right. You throw some seed on it and it grows. And the thing you need to learn with, with no telling a food plot is managing the residue. If you have, um, too thick of residue or you don't get soil exposure because you have too thick of residue and you're not using big fancy equipment like a drill or something, you're going to have challenges. Um, I'll revert back to what we were talking about earlier. I said about um, like a, a, a weedy mess area. All I would do is spray it and I wouldn't mow it. Um, I had a guy that <clears throat> um, he wanted to do exactly what we're just describing, a, a, a messy, pro- messy field. Um, wanted to convert it to a food plot. So what he did all summer long, it had grasses and annual weeds and golden rod and stuff like that. He just kept mowing it over and over and over again with a brush hog, just mowed it, mowed it, mowed it. Then when he went to plant that food plot, <clears throat> there was like this duff layer that was chopped into fine little bits and it was like three inches thick before you got to the soil surface. So all that is is like this grassy mulch mess. Well, you throw seed on. They actually planted it with a, a, a certain type of drill, but it was that thick. The seed never, ever reached soil. So it just got into that duff and it died. So I, I guess my, my to answer your question would be residue management and weed management. Those are two big things on my list. I mean, there's plenty of other things, but, I mean, those are two that come to my mind. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So we have uh... – we have some killers. We've talked about a little bit of the benefits. Um, is this something like rushing? My problem with anything in life is I, I procrastinate, I procrastinate, I procrastinate, uh, and then I rush to get something to get something finished. Uh, let's just say I rush. I say, oh, God, if I don't plan it by this time and – I don't check the forecast and there's no rain in the forecast. How long can a seed sit in dirt without rain before I have to start thinking about either bringing in water myself or re reseeding or replanting or, or things like that? Well, certain seeds are, are longer than others. I mean, it, it depends on what happened. I mean, do you throw the seed out and you literally don't, it like 
the soil is dry, you put the seed on, and it doesn't rain for two weeks, um, if that seed did not take moisture into it and start its process of, you know, germination, uh, then it's probably still viable seed. I've seen brassicas that had just that happen, and two weeks later, all of a sudden, you see these plants coming. It's like, where did they come from? Now, what what will be a fail is, let's say everything works out well. You throw your seed on, it gets a rain, then that night gets a half inch of rain. You're like, man, I'm in business. So that that seed took moisture in, and it started to grow. Yeah. Then for the next two weeks, you've got nothing. Um, generally speaking, if you go into that plot somewhere in that 10 to 14 day range after planting, and if you're seeing stuff that there's just these bare spots, um, and you can't find plants or maybe it's spotty or you go over here and you see a plant that looks like it came up, but it's starting to die because the roots are just dried out. That's a good indication that, oh, I better do something because these aren't taking off because at 14 days, it should be a blanket of green. If, if talking most species you know we're, we're kind of sticking on this brassica plot just because brassicas are generally speaking easy to grow um so that's kind of how i look at it brassicas can take a little bit long and a lot of other species are like that too like if you do wheat and rye um you know they can sit on the soil surface for a while and as long as they don't have moisture in them you know they're just waiting for that moisture to happen until they grow nice all right uh any other type of, of com- like things people should know about outside of anything that we've talked about before getting into like a last minute food plot i just say plan ahead i mean nothing comes to my mind really i think the thing i fear all the time is it's a lot of this is secondhand nature to me so to, to i struggle to bring it back to basics i mean it's great when people ask me beginner level conversations because then it takes me back and think oh yeah that's right i forgot that's secondhand nature somebody wouldn't know that but i mean based on what we talked about dan i can't think of anything gotcha okay so a guy has a food plot out there all right everybody kind of looks for the miracle the i don't know you know i want to i want to i want to make my food plot look like it's on a hunting show right you've seen those those food plots that are just almost like a, the Augusta golf course of food plots, just beautiful. Like someone's putting a lot of time, money and energy into that, that food plot. Is there anything that a guy can do once his food plot is in the ground to make it better? Yeah, certainly. Um, certain species respond better to certain fertilizers. Um, all plants of life need nitrogen. I mean, it's just a fact of life. I mean, nitrogen's what, 80-some percent of our air? I mean, it's a very important element. Um, All green, leafy plants need nitrogen. So a lot of the species we're talking about, cereal grains, brassicas, um, well, corn corn does too. That's earlier in the year. But any of them, those plants, if you top dress, and when I say top dress, I mean it's planted, it's already up, put nitrogen over top of it Um, generally speaking you want to do it before a rain event that rains it incorporates that nitrogen into the soil that's a great way to really push and drive plant yield Um, your again i'm assuming your ph is good your phosphorus is good your potassium is good all that stuff on a soil test checks out now it comes down to what is it taking in for nitrogen so for like a brassica plot you know, putting on 75 to 100 pounds per acre of urea, which is nitrogen, putting that over the top, um, that's a great way to sweeten things up and get them to, to push green, you know, leafy green, beautiful plants. Um, you know, you can do that with a lot of species. But, yeah, top dressing with fertilizer. I'm not a big fan of a lot of the, you know, ATV supplement in your your ATV sprayer tank fertilizers like there's products out there that you can do and it's it's liquid limes or this you know liquid fertilizer get things started they're not bad products um but what they are and what most few plotters don't realize is they're just band-aids to the problem like if you have a food plot that the pH is really really low and you use this liquid lime product it will correct 
um, to a certain degree the problems you have for that year. But it's not going to be a long-term solution to build your your pH up to an adequate level or your fertility to an adequate level. You need to do that by getting enough quality fertilizer, whether that's a manure of some sort or, you know, if you want to use commercial fertilizer, you can. But, you know, that hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. Um, food plot's in the ground. It's looking good. Is Is a food plot something you can just kind of – you know, I know some guys have to like. Uh, I hear clover. You got to mow it, right? It, are there food plots that you can plant? You know, uh, certain box stores they sell something called throw and go, where basically you just scatter it around anywhere. It'll grow, and the food the you know it's a it's a basically a food plot in a bag, right? You just th- set it and forget it type of deal. Is yeah. uh, our food plots something that you can walk away from and just ignore? Get it in and ignore. Now, different answer from everybody. My opinion is no, but that's because I'm a little bit more finicky with that stuff. Um, a lot of your throw-and-grow type seeds, um, your big box throw-and-grow blend, a lot of the time they have annual ryegrass in them. And annual ryegrass, in my opinion, is junk. I don't think it belongs in a food plot. And, you know, talking with Andrew over there, uh, the O2 podcast, you know, he's the, the turf guy, and he's like, that doesn't belong anywhere. It's it's junk in your yard too but annual ryegrass is one of those things it doesn't really it, it can handle a lot of stress it, it doesn't need a lot of water a lot of sun it can be put in crappy soil and it'll grow and it'll be green so you throw it out there and it might have a high percentage of annual ryegrass you get this green carpet in your food pot you're like yeah that worked that's great um is it really high attraction is it doing is it accomplishing the goals that you set out in the first place? I don't know. Uh, it's hard. It's hard for me to signify. But I personally don't recommend using that. I would rather have. I mean, brassicas are a throw and grow food plot. If you do all the things up in the front that we just described, if you have a clean seed bed and you're going to get rain ahead of time, you can throw brassicas on top of the soil surface, and they will grow. They literally are a throw and grow type seed. And if if the shoe fits, that's a better that's a better plant to use than annual ryegrass. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's uh, good to know because uh, I would definitely be that guy who would be like, uh, "All right, I planted a food plot. Oh crap, I forgot about it." Right? Like, uh, right. I I would just be you know time and kids. I, I blame everything on 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 kids right now. Well, yeah, I'm that I'm that way too, man. And the, the one thing I want to mention, Dan, like food plots, I, I keep saying this, and I'm, I'm beating a dead horse about planning ahead, but my food plots, I try to have a species that is peaking throughout the entire season at some point because not one plant is going to last you the entire season. Right. Like they all have their peak of when they're the best. So what I try to do is have as many species that are peaking from the beginning of October to the end of October and into November and December and try to have the best, most attractive food source in those locations, but it's all at a different time. And that way you keep deer movement more consistent, more predictable. That's that's important to me. Yeah. That's something that I want to talk about on another episode because, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, are are there plants that if you plant, let's say, June first, July first, the same plant August first, it's gonna, it's just gonna, they're gonna peak at that, uh, at th- throughout the whole summer, keeping deer on your property all all summer. Um. Or is that a more question of a, again. is or is that more of a varietal like uh, more different varieties of of seed or different times planting the same seed? It's both. It's that's yeah. I think I understand. It's both. I yeah. mean, variety is important, and the timing of planting and the type of species those all determine like what is like I'll, the best example I can give you is like corn. Like you, you see guys plant corn in April, May, June, and corn like deer will eat it when it's young but usually they let it alone until like august september when the tassels come out then they'll start to eat the tassels and then as that grain is drying down it's not as 
palatable. It's not as important. But then when you get to dry down and you get to that October, November time frame, oh my God, corn is insane. Like it's it's like crack cocaine to them. So like there's there's certain times where that plant peaks in its level of attractiveness. And again, that level of attractiveness can be different across the entire country based on what other food is around them. So it's gotcha. it's a load it's it's a giant loaded question that you know everybody talks in circles on. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Well, man, this has been like a real high level. I mean, I mean, very high. Not a lot of detail into this, but I, that's exactly what I wanted because um, I feel like if if a guy has a little area, maybe just some overgrown grown grass or maybe an old maybe an old building near an old building or something like that, that's that uh, it could be done on small properties or big properties uh, where just deer come and visit. Uh, I, I really do think that uh, a guy could get a food plot in the ground fairly simple if he just takes, I don't know, a little time, just a little bit. Now, if he wants to go big and do it big, that takes a little bit more time. But I, I felt like I wanted to get you on and just talk that, hey, it's not as difficult as some may seem, and you can do it relatively quick and relatively easy. I killed a 170-inch deer behind my house on a very small food plot that I put a water hole in. You know, did all the stuff that I played into my strategy, but the food plot was literally created by doing a little bit of planning and very minimal equipment. I mean, I literally had a hand seeder and... Um, a backpack sprayer that yeah. I used herbicide and I, I think I might have mowed junk with my, like I took my lawn mower up because I could I could get to it and I just mowed the tops of the dead material and covered the seed I mean it, it can it can be that simple you just got to do a little planning ahead of time and uh, I mean people get very carried away on the species and this and that and get into all the technical stuff and it really doesn't have to be that carried away it really the most important thing is once you get it established is relating it to hunting strategy and that's more important in my opinion than the, the plants and getting them established themselves yeah absolutely. that's the easy part in my opinion yeah. consistently accomplishing your goals is the harder part right right I got a guy who I talk with once a year about his food plot strategy and he plants the like a big food plot. He plants big food plots, but mm -hmm. he doesn't kill the deer over these big food plots. Somewhere between their bedding and this big end like destination food source, he plants these little what he call kills plots. Just like yeah. quarter acre. Just very small, maybe even less. And it's just something that gets them to stop before they head out, right? They, they pop out of the timber or, or hell, sometimes they're even in the, in the timber and just enough to pop out before they head down, you know, head to the destination. And he says, that's where he, that's how he's created his, his own success by doing it that way. And the property that I described to you, big monotonous mountains and like the only food plots are what we create, um, you know, it's so hard to create those in-between transition zones on a property like that. It takes a lot of time and a lot of sweat equity to get that. And what we find is because it's just a giant mess of bedding and we have food plots, you know, first of all, the wind swirls like crazy. I right. mean, I, I, what, what, what your buddy is describing and what a lot of people talk about hunting those transitions, I completely agree with. They're great. Um We've had the most success, and I know this. You'll you'll laugh and you'll you'll poke fun because you know you like to you know do it the hard way, like a lot of guys do. But <laughs> we have we have box blinds now. We don't buy them; they're all homemade. Like we literally cut the lumber. We have a sawmill, make the boards, build blinds that fit our needs, and then we seal them in with plastic and have good gaskets and i know that sounds ridiculous and it does sound ridiculous but the thing is with the swirling winds that we deal with i mean don't get me wrong there's places across the country you you'll experience swirling winds but it's way different in the country that we're talking about here. yeah and like we find that if we sit in a box blind with these closed gaskets that is truly our best chance to kill a mature buck i mean i could think of three mature buck in the past four years that were killed on a food plot the first time in 
and I mean, we had deer on all sides of us, and it's not that they can't smell you. It's just such a reduced um, effect. Like, like it's in a sense, it's almost like you're cheating, but it's it's truly like it was such an eye opener because we used to sit on food plots all the time, and I mean, you'd pull cameras. Mature deer were on food plots all the time, and then you go there and you don't see mature deer. It's like, yeah. okay, so scratch my head. Something's not going on here. And a lot of times, just that variable wind condition, it just was really playing into success. And if you're gonna hunt a food plot, I mean, that's kind of the way to go. I mean, John Teeter talks about that a lot too, and and his his strategy. But I agree. Like, food plots are a great way to steer deer movement. You don't want to ruin that because if that's their daily routine and you screw that up, that is going to change that daylight, daytime movement to nighttime movement. So those in between, in between transition zones, man, that's killer. Absolutely. Mr. Mitchell Shirk, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you're a busy man. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on, chatting food plots and and deer habitat with us, and uh, we'll get you on again. Thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Mitch. Huge shout out to each and every one of you uh, for listening in. Do me a favor, wear your safety harness this season, send good vibes out to the world, and I swear to God, you'll send them back. Huge shout out to Tethered, Wasp, Hunt Stand, and Vortex. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you.